the Senate hearing in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order and uh, welcome you all to this hearing. I was pleased to meet with all of you in my office earlier. I appreciate uh, you making that effort and uh, to get to know you better and talk about your history and what you hope to accomplish. Uh, as you know, I've long had an interest in African affairs and had some opportunity to spend time there, including in Zimbabwe, where uh, one of the nominees is headed. Uh, today, we'll hear from nominees from Ghana, Zimbabwe, Equatorial Guinea, and Guinea, and from the nominee to serve as uh, assistant administrator at AID and its Africa Bureau. We'll also examine a wide variety of issues. Uh, Ghana has embarked in its second MCC compact to address energy issues facing the country. Uh, while it tries to diversify its economy away from oil, uh, Zimbabwe's aged dictator Robert Mugabe is beginning to show signs uh, that his age may give way to succession at some point, and uh, we'll be watching that leadership struggle uh, in that country. Equatorial Guinea continues to struggle with human rights and developing its resources in a way to benefit all of its citizens. Uh, Guinea, of course, is picking up the pieces from the Ebola outbreak uh, that wrought such devastation there and uh, is looking forward to build, building a post-Ebola healthcare system. Lastly, we'll look at how the Africa Bureau at USAID can bridge the gap from this administration to the next one uh, while ensuring little or no disruption in the work that it's doing in Sub-Saharan Africa. I thank all of you for your time, for sharing your experiences and your expertise with us. Look forward to your testimony. Uh, we have a packed uh, schedule around this today, and so I hope you don't uh, uh, take our, our desire for brevity uh, in this hearing as anything other than uh, we have a, a busy schedule, and we appreciate you being here, and also appreciate, I know many of you have family members uh, sitting behind you, and hopefully you will uh, recognize them in your testimony. But uh, I'd like to recognize uh, Senator Markey for his comments. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. And thank you for your leadership uh, on the subcommittee and for convening this hearing to consider the nomination of these distinguished public servants to serve as United States ambassadors to countries in Africa and one to lead USAID's Africa Bureau. And to all the nominees who are here today, thank you for dedicating your lives in service to our country. Every one of you has served uh, with a commitment and a dedication that we uh, appreciate and admire. Uh, these are important nominations. Africa presents much opportunity, but also many challenges. Uh, Mr. Chairman, when you and I joined the President in Africa this summer, we saw firsthand the possibilities to spark Africa's existing entrepreneurial spirit, to create unprecedented economic opportunity and growth. We can and we should spur this growth by supporting expanded access to sustainable sources of power, innovative telecommunications, and internet connectivity. All of these uh, are fundamental requirements for commercial and social success uh, in this modern 21st century era. At the same time, Africa faces tremendous challenges. Uh, we must strongly support efforts to prevent trafficking in persons protect human rights, including the right of LGBT people, and strengthen democracy and good governance. So I look forward to the hearing today. Uh, and uh, again, we thank all of you uh, for being here and your willingness to serve our country. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Markey. Our first nominee is uh, Robert Porter Jackson, career member of the uh, career or senior foreign service 
most recently uh, at the State Department and prior to that, ambassador to the Republic of Cameroon, previous postings in Morocco, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, Zimbabwe, Botswana, Nigeria, Burundi. That's just about all of Africa there. So. Second nominee, Harry K. Thomas, a career member of the Senior Foreign Service, also, or I'm sorry, currently serving as diplomat in residence at Arizona State University, smart man. So <laughs> I understand your wife enjoys it there as well. That's a good, good place to be. Everybody in Arizona, ends up in Arizona at some point, I should mention. Uh, prior to that, he served as ambassador to the Philippines, previously posted in uh, Washington, D.C., and also around the world. Third nominee is uh, Julia uh, Faruda Toy, who's a career uh, member of the Foreign Service as well. Career, uh, current posting is at our embassy in Oslo. Uh, previous posts in Ghana, Washington, D.C., and around the world. We talked in my office about uh, springing from the equator up to Scandinavia and, and back. Uh, so that's, that's quite, quite a trip. Uh, I don't know what kind of clothes you pack wherever you go, but it uh, has to be a variety. Our fourth nominee is Dennis K. Hankins, a career member of the Senior Foreign Service also. He currently serves as, uh, at our consulate in Brazil, prior postings in Sudan, Mauritania, Mozambique, DRC, and elsewhere. And also, uh, the last as well, we're talking about, uh, it's not on this sheet, but... Uh, but Linda and I traveled in Africa uh, recently, Linda Edom, uh, in, from Wisconsin, Assistant Administrator to USAID, the Africa Bureau there. Um, enjoyed being with you and Senator Markey as well in uh, Kenya and Ethiopia. So I look forward to hearing your testimony. We'll start with uh, Ambassador Jackson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member. I'm honored to appear before you today and I am grateful for the confidence that President Obama and Secretary Kerry have placed in me as their nominee to be the ambassador to the Republic of Ghana. I'm joined by my wife, Babs Jackson, and other friends and colleagues this afternoon. Since I joined the Foreign Service 33 years ago, as you noted, I've served on three continents, as well as here at home. In these assignments, I've endeavored to promote human rights, strengthen civil society, foster development, and expand U.S. exports. I have repeatedly returned to Africa because I have found that in the course of two or three years, one can see what one has accomplished. I found that especially true as ambassador to Cameroon. If confirmed as the next U.S. ambassador to Ghana, I will draw upon these experiences to advance U.S. interests in Africa. Ghana is a strong partner of the United States sharing democratic values and goals of human rights, economic growth, and regional stability. If confirmed, my priorities will be to promote democracy, good governance, peace, trade, education, and health, to unlock Ghana's potential for sustained, inclusive, broad-based economic growth, and to help it graduate from traditional development assistance. Ghana is widely considered one of the leading democracies on the African continent with active political parties and civil society organizations. Ghana's democracy benefits from a lively media, a history of peaceful political transitions, an apolitical military, and a good human rights record. Celebrating 58 years of independence in 2015, Ghana has held six national elections since 1992, and power has alternated between its two largest political parties. 
If confirmed, I look forward to witnessing Ghana achieve its seventh consecutive peaceful and transparent national democratic elections in December of 2016. Ghana has been hit hard by low prices for its three major exports, cocoa, gold, and oil. Nonetheless, Ghana has the potential to become one of sub-Saharan Africa's leading economies and provides enormous opportunities for bilateral trade and investment. While Ghana takes advantage of the African Growth and Opportunity Act, continued assistance to increase domestic capacity and market competitiveness is needed to help Ghanaian businesses take full advantage of the trade benefits provided by this legislation. The recently launched Trade Africa Expansion Initiative, along with USAID's West African Trade Hub, will play key roles in building the capacity of Ghanaian institutions and supporting Ghana's efforts to expand exports. Along with the USAID-led Feed the Future programs, the Trade Hub will also increase regional trade in agricultural products to improve food security. If confirmed, I will explore new and innovative approaches to expand commercial ties. One of the breaks on Ghana's growth has been inadequate infrastructure, especially in the energy sector. Ghana completed a five-year Millennium Challenge Account Compact in 2012, focused on agriculture and rural development, and Ghana signed a second compact during the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit last August, this one focusing on the power sector. The summit itself highlighted U.S. ties with Africa. People-to-people -people links between the United States and Ghana have grown ever stronger over the last 50-plus years. And we've enjoyed a continuous and vibrant Peace Corps presence, as well as other exchange programs. Ghana is the original Peace Corps country. And Ghanaians are proud to say that while Peace Corps was born in the United States, it learned to walk in Ghana. More than 4,000 Peace Corps volunteers have served in Ghana since 1961, and there are currently 136 volunteers in agriculture, education, and health projects. In fact, Ghana has made steady but uneven progress in improving health over the last decade. Ghana and the United States share an interest in countering terrorism, securing maritime borders, and promoting regional stability. We are also working together to combat drug and human trafficking. Ghana is an important supporter of peacekeeping and law enforcement through the Kofi Annan Peacekeeping Center and a regional training center, respectively. A longtime participant in peacekeeping operations, Ghana is also a partner in the Security Governance Initiative and the African Peacekeeping Rapid Response Initiative, and its stability has contributed to peace and security in West Africa. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, I thank you for the opportunity to address you this afternoon, and I welcome your questions. Thank you, Mr. Jackson. Mr. Thomas. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, I am honored to appear before you today and grateful to President Obama, Secretary Kerry, and Assistant Secretary Linda Thomas-Greenfield for the confidence they have placed in me as their nominee for Ambassador to the Republic of Zimbabwe. Permit me to thank my family for their support, especially my wife and partner, Miti Aquino Thomas, my sister, Nelda Canada, my cousins, Jen and Sharon Boyd, Kamitrick and Leslie Smith, and my niece, Aaliyah Thomas. We're also joined 
by friends from around the globe, and I very much appreciate their attendance to witness how our democracy functions. I would like to add my sincere appreciation to my mom, who's here today, Hildania Thomas, robust at 91, and my late father, Harry Thomas Sr., whose guidance and love gave me the opportunity to be before you today. A special thanks to my in-laws, Colonel Aquino and Dr. Aquino, for their faith and trust in me. Finally, our three children, Casey, Emmanuel, Miguel, and Zoe, are away at university, but with us today in spirit. Mr. Chairman, I will summarize my remarks as the entire testimony has been entered into the record. Mr. Chairman, if confirmed, my top priorities will be to ensure the security and safety of American citizens and to advance the interests and values of the United States and the American people. I'm excited at the possibility of returning to Zimbabwe where I previously served our nation during a time of relative harmony. It is a land where our daughter Casey learned to walk, talk, and respect the wonderful people of Zimbabwe. It is where I visited the beautiful and important game parks that must be protected, saw the great historic Zimbabwe ruins, experienced the wondrous Victoria Falls, and witnessed the, the excitement the entire world shared when Nelson Mandela was released from prison and paid his initial visit to Harare as an example of forgiveness, tolerance, and respect for human rights. With full recognition of the complex challenges Zimbabwe faces, I remain optimistic about the country's future and believe that the United States has an important role to play in helping the people of Zimbabwe build a just, free, and prosperous nation. The trajectory of Zimbabwe's recent past should not obscure the nation's tremendous potential. Though battered by more than a decade of political strife, economic decline, and challenges to its health system, Zimbabwe retains a foundational human and physical infrastructure upon which it can build a strong future. It is in the interest of the United States to be a partner in that process, and if confirmed, I will continue the work of building productive and respective relationships with all Zimbabweans of goodwill. The United States has shown its deep and abiding concern for Zimbabwe through the nearly $1 billion in humanitarian relief and health-related assistance we have provided to its people just in the last decade. There is no more explicit expression of our support for the people of Zimbabwe than our standing by them through their times of greatest need. We need, however, to prepare to move beyond a relationship defined by aid. U.S. policy in Zimbabwe is not about regime change. Only the people of Zimbabwe have the ability to change their government. Our policies support principles, not parties or people. When, however, self-determination is denied, as it is in Zimbabwe through political violence, fraudulent and mismanaged elections, and restrictions on the rights and opportunity to take part in the conduct of public affairs, the United States cannot ignore such human rights violations. We have taken principal steps to demonstrate our concern about the actions of those responsible for and those who profit from miscarriages of the promise Zimbabwe offered at independence. We will consistently stand for the rights of Zimbabweans to participate fully in their nation's political process. If confirmed, I will work to enable Zimbabwe to become a just, prosperous, and democratic state that meets the needs of its people, contributes to security and development in the region, and plays an important role in world affairs. We will 
not always agree with the government of Zimbabwe, but we will always attempt to maintain a respectful and open dialogue. The United States seeks the full implementation of the 2013 Constitution, credible, lasting, democratic reforms, and respect for human rights and the rule of law. If confirmed, I will work toward those objectives which could be a trigger for the United States to open a much more dynamic relationship. Thank you for the opportunity to, to appear before you today, and I would be happy to answer any questions. Well, thank you, Mr. Thomas. As they say in Zimbabwe, kota kotu. Right. Congratulations for this, uh, this nomination. And before Ms. Furuta Toy says something, uh, we have a home state senator. Yeah, well, thank, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate the opportunity to congratulate all the nominees and thank you for your commitment to service. Uh, I absolutely do want to take a moment to welcome uh, Julie Farutatoy to the committee. I would love to stay. I'm chairing a, a public lands subcommittee hearing this afternoon, but I did want to come and congratulate each of you and, and to talk specifically um, about a proud resident of the great state of Wyoming. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, Julie and her husband Stephen made the wise decision to make Cody, Wyoming their home. As many of you know, uh, Cody is a wonderful town full of natural beauty. It's the gateway to uh, Wyoming's crown jewel Yellowstone National Park and uh, the home of former Wyoming U.S. Senator Alan Simpson. So if you need any advice, call Al. <laughs> he'll put it in terms that he'll be able to make it very clear to anyone listening exactly what he has in mind. But I, I will just tell you, as, as a career member of the Senior Foreign Service, uh, Julie Farutatoy has worked in many critical countries across the globe. Uh, including Mexico, the Philippines, Haiti, Russia, uh, Ghana, India, Norway. Her 29 years of service has provided her with the knowledge, the skills, the experiences to address the many challenges and adventures ahead. Uh, I'm very grateful uh, for her willingness to serve our country and to provide strong leadership in implementing the foreign policy goals of the United States. It's clear that she will make uh, her family, the people of Wyoming, and our nation very, very proud. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, thank you. You're right to be proud. Uh, Mr. Hankins. Oh, I'm sorry. We, I thought I was speaking for you. She'll take no, questions no. later. <laughs> I apologize, Ms. Frutatoy. Thank you very much, Chairman Flake, Ranking Member Markey, Senator Barroso, Senator Kane. Um, I'm very pleased today to have the opportunity to testify before you. It is a great honor for me to appear this afternoon as the nominee to be the next United States Ambassador to the Republic of Equatorial Guinea. And I am grateful for the confidence that President Obama and Secretary of State Kerry have placed in me. If confirmed by the Senate, I will do my best to uphold this trust and further the U.S. national interests. Mr. Chairman, I regret that my husband Steve is in Wyoming today and my daughter Sarah is unable to be here, but I am pleased to introduce to you my son Elliot. He was born during my first tour in the Foreign Service 27 years ago in Manila, the Philippines. And since then, as Senator Barroso has noted, I've served in many places around the world, uh, a disparate group of countries that has demonstrated to me similarly disparate attitudes to the, towards the rule of law, good governance, and transparency. While serving as the Deputy Chief of Mission in Ghana, I am proud to have implemented U.S. foreign policy focused on reducing and eliminating the worst forms of child labor and trafficking in persons. And through interagency dialogue and strong support from the Department of State and U.S. Congress, we were also able to promote important educational exchanges, target assistance towards the country's impediments to growth, and support U.S. commercial interests. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Markey, if confirmed, I look forward to working with you and the honorable members of this committee similarly to advance U.S. interests in Equatorial Guinea. 
U.S. policy priorities in Equatorial Guinea are to encourage the government there to open democratic space to the opposition, increase respect for human rights and civil liberties, strengthen our commercial ties and diversify its economy, and to increase economic health and educational opportunities for all its citizens. Equatorial Guinea, with a population of about one million people, is located on the strategic Gulf of Guinea. Although the country is nominally a multi-party constitutional republic, President Obiang's Democratic Party of Equatorial Guinea has been in power since a military coup in 1979. The party controls all but one seat in the Chamber of Deputies and one seat in the Senate. Opposition political parties are severely restricted and opposition leaders have faced harassment, intimidation, and arrest. Equatorial Guinea is the third largest producer of oil in Sub-Saharan Africa and has one of the highest per capita income rates in Africa. Despite this, much of its population lives below the poverty level and official corruption is widespread. Should I be confirmed, I will stress and encourage the country's leadership to respect human rights and rule of law. I will also urge that government leaders pursue multi-party democracy and facilitate the growth of a strong civil society. And I will stress that promoting transparency and ending corrupt practices are key to Equatorial Guinea's long-term growth and stability. The United States has a robust economic relationship with Equatorial Guinea and remains its largest trading partner. The U.S. Embassy plays a critical trade facilitation and promotion role for U.S. investors in Equatorial Guinea. U.S. oil companies are Equatorial Guinea's largest investors, and they have the lead role in oil and gas exploration and extraction. Moreover, last year, Equatorial Guinea was the ninth largest African market for U.S. exports. Should I be confirmed, I will continue to work to protect the commercial interests of U.S. oil companies invested in Equatorial Guinea. Mr. Chairman, while our bilateral dialogue and engagement pays heed to Equatorial Guinea's sovereignty and traditions, we must also be frank in discussing our concerns. If confirmed, I will continue to promote U.S. interests and encourage Equatorial Guinea's further political, economic, and social development, while vigilantly protecting the safety of our embassy personnel and their families. And finally, if confirmed, no goal will be more important to me than protecting the lives, interests, and welfare of American citizens living and traveling in Equatorial Guinea. I promise to work closely with you and the members of this committee in this endeavor. I thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today, and I would be pleased to answer any questions you may have. Thank you. Mr. Hankins. Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, I'm deeply honored to appear before you today for the and grateful to President Obama and Secretary Kerry for the confidence they have placed in me as their nominee for Ambassador to the Republic of Guinea. I want to recognize my wife, Mira, who is here today. She has been my, by my side through 31 years in the Foreign Service, and I credit her for providing support for any success I may have had. My son, Danu, cannot be here today due to his service commitments with the United States Navy. It has been my honor to serve in 16 assignments during my Foreign Service career, with six of those assignments spanning 14 years focused on Africa. Many of my assignments have been in countries in the midst of or emerging from crisis. Despite the challenges of these postings, I have relished the opportunities to engage in diplomacy that can dramatically affect a country's future and advance American interests. My experience in a number of young African democracies tells me that the transi transition from dictatorship to an open society requires constant sustained attention and commitment by national leaders and all segments of society. 
Ghanaians have made it clear that they want to see the United States working hand in hand with all three branches of the Ghanaian government to reinforce Guinea's democratic architecture. Our work to strengthen media reforms and civil society is just as important. As part of our work with the executive branch, we continue to work with Guinea's security apparatus, the military and police, to strengthen its professionalism and bring it firmly under elected civilian authority. Finally, we must sustain our efforts to reduce poverty and disease in Guinea, including by strengthening the health system. Responsible management of Guinea's mineral wealth is key to Guinea's long-term poverty reduction efforts. The challenges are many and will only be overcome through true Ghanaian commitment, but we need to support those who wish to help their country. The Republic of Guinea achieved a landmark election in 2010, its first free and democratic presidential election. If confirmed, I will work hard to ensure U.S. support for Guinea's nascent that Guinea's nascent democracy continues in a meaningful and impactful way. Guinea will hold its second presidential elections in 11 days. If confirmed, my priority will be work to work with the newly elected administration and opposition parties in building an inclusive and constructive political dialogue. Looking towards the new year, my focus will shift to local elections. These upcoming elections provide Guinea the concrete opportunity to further deepen its transition to democracy. In the midst of presidential elections, Guinea continues to battle the Ebola outbreak. If confirmed, I remain firmly committed and fully committed to helping Guinea get to zero in its fight against Ebola. The persistent transmission of Ebola over the past 18 months highlights the fragility of primary healthcare facilities in the country and deep-rooted public health challenges. The United States continues to provide significant technical assistance to Guinea on restoring and improving the healthcare system as well as ending the Ebola epidemic. I look forward to supporting the efforts, efforts of USAID, CDC, and NIH in Guinea. In the long term, if confirmed, I will encourage the Ghanaian government to remain a constructive regional and international actor and will work with the government in all segments of society to foster better political and economic decision making at home. In the Republic of Guinea, we have a willing partner on regional and international issues, yet the government's capacity is limited. If confirmed, I will work with the Ghanaian government to further strengthen its approach to regional crises. I will also work to strengthen cooperation on counter-narcotics issues, as well as other forms of transnational crimes, such as trafficking in persons and money laundering. I will make the safety and welfare of my staff and all U.S. citizens my highest priority and seek out commercial opportunities for U.S. companies. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and members of the committee for the opportunity to address you today. If conformed, I look forward to working with you and representing the interests of the American people in Guinea. I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you. Ms. Adam. Great. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Markey, uh, distinguished members of the committee, uh, it's an honor to appear before you today as the nominee to be the next Assistant Administrator for USAID's Bureau for Africa. I want to express my appreciation for the confidence that President Obama has placed in me with this nomination and for the strong support of Secretary Kerry and Acting Administrator Linhart. I'd also like to take the opportunity to thank Earl Gass, the Africa Bureau's former Assistant Administrator who ably led the Bureau for three years. Most importantly, I'd like to thank my family. 
my sister Ann Edom, who's here today taking her day off of work, as well as our parents and our other sister Jennifer Edom, uh, who recently passed away but remain a constant source of motivation and strength. My nomination to this post is deeply personal. As the daughter of an immigrant who fled Nigeria for the United States during the Biafran War, I'm intimately familiar with the pressures that a country's fragility places on its citizens. After more than a decade of working on African issues for the United States government, I've seen development improve people's lives and, and their ability to take their destiny into their own hands. This is why I believe in USAID's mission to end extreme poverty, to promote democratic societies, to bolster security, and to help encourage prosperity for all. My professional life has been devoted to supporting US efforts to empower Africa's people to fulfill the promise that resides on every corner of the continent. I've spent the first few years working for the US government as a security specialist in African affairs, but more recently at the White House as the National Security Director for Sudan, South Sudan, and East African Affairs, I helped to coordinate US policy on security issues, governance, economic growth, and humanitarian crises. In that position, I saw firsthand the important role that development plays for efforts on, a, on the continent. I was then honored to be appointed as Deputy Assistant Administrator to Africa for USAID, and for the past three and a half years in that position, I've stood side by side with the agency's committed men and women. Many of our staff work in difficult environments and tackle really difficult challenges throughout the world. If confirmed, in addition to focusing on the management for the Bureau, I will concentrate on three objectives. First, I believe we need to continue to invest in Africa's greatest resource, which is its people to further development, democracy, human rights, and government, and governance for this and for future generations. Second, I will continue USAID's focus on accelerating sustainable development through African-led partnerships. And third, I will ensure that our work is implemented effectively and that we evaluate the results and apply lessons learned going forward. Although a number of Africans Africa's challenges can seem intractable, I see both the challenges and the remarkable progress that the African continent has sustained as bright lights of opportunity. With the strong bipartisan support from Congress, our initiatives across the continent have actually led to some really great results. For example, and as you know, Feed the Future has helped more than 2.5 million African farmers use improved technologies and management practices, and has led to increased food security. Through Power Africa, U.S. commitments of $7 billion have mobilized $20 billion, sorry, $7 billion, have mobilized more than $20 billion in private capital, which is financing access to energy and will add 6 million new connections across the continent. Africa is the fastest growing continent in the world, and its population in the coming decades will double. Many of its citizens will be under the age of 18. We have the opportunity now to harness the intelligence, creativity, and drive of these young Africans who will ignite growth and lead reforms throughout the region. They need enhanced skills, they need access to capital, they need jobs, they need the innovations that will help drive tomorrow's development solutions. This is why I'm so supportive of the initiatives that we have here today. There's no denying that Africa is important to the United States both from the standpoint of our moral imperative to help solve the biggest development challenges on the planet and because of its impact on our own national security and economic growth. USAID is committed to collaborating with donors and private sector partners to amplify the impact of US investments in development. And if confirmed, I'm eager to advance this approach to doing business. If confirmed, I look forward to continuing to deepen our relationship with Congress 
Your longstanding and bipartisan support to African people has provided the foundation for our programs and is the springboard for our future success. I thank you for your opportunity to appear before you today, and I welcome any questions you might have. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Adam. I'll start with a round of questions, and, and if you could uh, keep your answers as short as possible, we'll get as many questions in as we can with, with five of you there. Uh, Mr. Jackson, with regard to Ghana, uh, you mentioned uh, challenges on the energy side. Where are most investments needed, and how can that be facilitated for the programs that we have? Is it on uh, generation or distribution, transmission, all of the above? Uh, uh, give us a sense of what is needed there. Senator, it's actually all of the above. Uh, the Millennium Challenge Compact is focused on distribution um, and construction of an additional gas plant. The Overseas Private Investment Corporation is also investing in an additional gas plant. Um, but there is much more work needed to ensure that many underserved areas of Ghana have access to electricity. And through the Power Africa program, we're attempting to supplement the gains that will be made through the compact. Thank you. Well, well thank you. Mr. Thomas, uh, as we talked about in my office, I actually wrote my master's thesis on Robert Mugabe and his ability to, to hold on to power at the end of the 80s. And uh, here we are almost 30 years later uh, with the same, some of the same issues. But uh, you mentioned uh, in my office that it'll take a generation of work uh, to turn Zimbabwe around. Where do we start? What's uh, the place where the US needs to start? Well, Senator, you make an excellent point. Uh, it will take time. And I think working with the business community in Zimbabwe and the United States uh, to lower economic obstacles, to increase opportunity, to reduce corruption, to make more transparency will be an excellent start for our bilateral relationship and to increase their economic opportunity uh, over 65% of the people of Zimbabwe are under 40 years of age, 85% unemployment rate. So they need this opportunity through, through business and education. And those are the things that we would look at if I am confirmed. Thank you very much. Right. Thank you, Ms. Rudatoy. Um, you talked about the issues with regard to government corruption and the lack of distribution of uh, the, the wealth, the oil wealth that comes there. Um, let me turn to security for a minute. Uh, maritime security in the Gulf of Guinea. Uh, how much of an issue is that? Um, and uh, what contributions is Equatorial Guinea making to that? And, and uh, is that a partnership with other nations? And are, are we doing enough, the U.S., to make sure that we don't have a situation there that we had uh, in the Horn of Africa earlier on? Senator, um, thank you for that question. The issue of security in Equatorial Guinea um, is, uh, is one that involves all of the nations in the Gulf of Guinea. Uh, we have encouraged the government of Equatorial Guinea to collaborate with its neighbors on maritime security and um, have supported the participation of Equatorial Guinea on a uh, self-funded, funded by the Equatorial Guinea, uh, Ghanaian government um, with in maritime um, joint operation, uh, joint practices in the region. Uh, beyond that, the government of Equatorial Guinea really prides itself on being able to provide security and safety for its citizens. And uh, we are encouraging the government to, to try to, to take that in a bigger, bigger point of view of you're providing security and safety, but you also need to be able to provide uh, a larger democratic space for the opposition 
um, for the uh, political process so that uh, the future of the country is, uh, is better secured. Approximately um, half of the country is under the age of 19, so the future really is in the youth and in, in those future generations. Right. Thank you. Mr. Hankins, uh, between the three countries that had the biggest issue with uh, Ebola, um, Guinea was, was had the most difficult time, I guess, stamping it out, and uh, some worry that uh, will be the most likely place for it to flare up again. What can we do on the public health side that we're not doing already to ensure that that doesn't happen? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, it's correct, then, that uh, Ebola started in Guinea and has passed through. We've had more than 3,200 confirmed cases in Guinea of Ebola, and even this past week, we've had four new cases. Where there has been success, and I give great credit to my colleagues from USAID, from CDC, we've helped the government build the capacity to quickly isolate and limit expansion. Uh, we're now looking, and if confirmed, I believe I will arrive at a point of transition from Ebola crisis to long-term health care. And we're looking with, in terms of the global uh, health security uh, agenda, in terms of continuing to focus on Ebola, but building the other parts of the health system that have weakened, particularly in terms of the vaccination systems. Uh, in 2013, the vaccination rate for the country was only 63%, putting it in the bottom 10% of, of developing countries. We saw the effect of that recently with a polio case that carried on into Mali. So we'll be looking closely at building these basic systems while not losing sight of Ebola and the risks that that poses. Thank you, Ms. Adam, you talked in your testimony and we talked about before the, the benefits of UA, USAID's action in Africa, alleviating poverty, helping development, and improving the quality of life. Those things are important and that's the first and foremost reason that we take action there, but there are also knock-on effects uh, and impacts from uh, USAID with regard to the security sphere and our ability to work with countries and their willingness to work with us. Uh, can you talk a little about that? So our constituents need to know that story more, that, uh, that you know, obviously the reason we want to help with USAID is to help development and improve the quality of life, but there are other um, you know, benefits as well. Talk about those for a minute. Thank you, Senator. We, we did have that conversation, and, and I think that you can see very clearly uh, with the case that uh, Dennis just brought up with Ebola, um, when you have health systems that aren't strengthened and when you have country governance systems that aren't trusted, uh, the possibility and the potential of starting pandemics that can't be contained uh, and that actually might have flared to actually affect us here in the United States is very real and present. Uh, we're dealing with, I think, a lot of transnational uh, trafficking issues. Uh, I think the migration crisis that we're seeing right now uh, in other parts of the world. Uh, Africa is home to 38% uh, of the world's refugees. Uh, it's hugely expensive uh, for the international community not only to respond, but I think as we look at people moving over borders as well, addressing and dealing with a lot of the root causes becomes increasingly important. Uh, I think I'll, I'll stop there. I could go on for a really long time. Address for just a second, uh, not just the uh, you know migration issues and refugee issues, but uh, arrangements that we have with Kenya to to battle uh, you know terrorist groups there and else. A lot of those are those relationships uh, um, helped by our other assistance uh, you know through USAID. 
Absolutely. Uh, USAID works in partnership with a larger uh, U.S. government efforts on uh, work on countering violent extremism. As you mentioned, uh, Kenya is a prime example right there. Uh, there, USAID works on addressing some of the root causes. And so as part of an overall interagency effort, for example, uh, we work on uh, combating wildlife trafficking. Mm -hmm. And through our community-based programs there mm -hmm. and assisting communities in developing plans to uh, work on economic growth, sustain livelihoods, we offer alternatives to uh, moving into violent extremism. Uh, we also work in partnership there uh, with a, a number of uh, wildlife uh, trafficking institutions and the national police services. Uh, so USA, the idea is an integral part of that overall interagency effort. Thank you much. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Uh, Ambassador Jackson, earlier this year, the State Department named Ghana as the first country in which to implement the child protection compacts, which have a specific focus on to prioritize the rescue of children in slave labor conditions and hold perpetrators of child labor uh, accountable uh, for those crimes. Talk a little bit about that and what the role is of the U.S. government in ensuring that this is a successful program. Thank you very much, Senator. Um, in fact, Ghana has a strong tradition of working uh, to combat trafficking in persons and child labor. Uh, it remains a problem. The Ghanaian government has traditionally been focused on preventing the outflow of uh, trafficked people. Um, we have encouraged through this new partnership program, which is uh, valued at $5 million, uh, to have Ghana work more on the inside. Uh, we've provided assistance for protection, prevention, and prosecution. Um, the prosecution part has worked reasonably well, uh, but we need to do much more on the protection front, and I'm hopeful that this partnership will allow us to do so. Thank you. Uh, Ambassador Thomas, the United States has sent a tremendous amount of aid to Zimbabwe to fight HIV AIDS. Um, could you update us in terms of what that status is and maybe recommendations that you might make in terms of other healthcare assistance that we could help to provide to Zimbabwe? Well, thank you for that question, Senator. Yes, the American taxpayer has been extremely generous in helping the people of Zimbabwe. This year, we've provided over $120 million to combat uh, the scourge of HIV AIDS. Uh, we're looking at not just transmission, uh, but prevention through nutrition, through education. And those are programs we have to continue. Under Ambassador Burke's leadership, we are looking at an aggressive way of auditing our program to make sure the taxpayers' monies continue to be well spent. If confirmed, sir, I would be looking forward to working with uh, the Senate and the House in, new, in developing new ways of uh, assisting the people in a country where over 15% of the population uh, is suffering from HIV AIDS. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Fatura Toy, uh, Equatorial Guinea is, and I didn't know this, the third largest producer of oil mm -hmm. in Africa, and yet 75% of their people live in poverty. And uh, unfortunately, that's a all too frequent statistic around the world with countries that have oil resources. Um, do you have any recommendations as to what rec what help we could give to Equatorial Guinea to diversify their economy, to broaden a base of growth 
so that it affects more families positively in that country? Senator, thank you for that. Um, the disparities between the income and the poverty levels in Equatorial Guinea are, um, are extreme, and it is, uh, it is something that, um, should I be confirmed, I would like to, to be able to focus a little bit of the U.S. government attention on trying to uh, make sure that the revenues from, uh, from the oil industry and from other businesses are, uh, are better distributed across the country. One of the ways that I think we can encourage the government to, to move forward is by supporting it in a, its application, its reapplication actually, to the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, EITI. The government announced last year that it would reapply to EITI, and that this will mean that it has to bring in civil society, um, it has to declare it, its, uh, its revenues, and uh, the result of that should be that the public will better understand what actually is out there um, and how better they can benefit um, across the board. We, uh, should I be confirmed, uh, we will continue to support the, um, the improvement in education, health, uh, uh, sanitation, and, and other social issues that um, many of the U.S. companies that are in Equatorial Guinea right now are supporting through their corporate social responsibility programs. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Mr. Hankins, could you uh, take us back to the outbreak of the Ebola crisis and look at the three countries and give us a little tutorial on why it was that Guinea was so much less effective uh, in its response, in its healthcare infrastructure capacity to be able to deal with this issue than the other countries? Yes, Senator. It started there, and it started in the area of the country in the Forestier region, which is the part that is hardest to reach and historically has been one of those least served. Uh, in some sense, there was a basis of a health system. It's the only of a country of the three where we did not evacuate our personnel because we saw a basis to continue then protection of our personnel there. Uh, it's also a country where there was a huge problem in terms of public acceptance of government response. It's a country where we saw healthcare workers killed by villagers who were afraid of their response. And when that happened, then the government of Guinea trying to figure out how to respond and initially uh, responding with a very heavy military presence, which only exasper exasperated the situation. Uh, it's also one where, frankly, we don't have, and we didn't have that strong a French-speaking uh, component within our CDC and USAID. Those elements were found and eventually helped uh, build then the response. Uh, so it's been a country where trying to get past public uh, distrust of facilities has been difficult. Uh, I know Peace Corps staff in the country were in fact very important because they had the contacts with traditional leaders, with imams, which eventually helped turn the situation in terms of having a more effective government approach to the population. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And uh, Ms. Adam, when uh, Chairman Flake and I were with the president in Ethiopia, um, we signed, uh, we're part of the signing of a deal to produce 1,000 megawatts of geothermal power, which was just potentially the beginning of that incredible um, uh, potential growth in electricity from indigenous sources inside of Ethiopia. Can you talk a little bit about 
uh, going forward, what you see as the biggest challenges to making it possible to unleash all of this uh, uh, capacity, which is latent on that continent using USAID and other agencies as the kind of the, the fulcrum, the, the lever to uh, ensure that it, we telescope the time frame uh, to, uh, to uh, ensure that, that that electrical generation does uh, reach the business and consumer sectors in each of those countries. Thank you for raising that question. And as you mentioned, being in Ethiopia, the signing of the Corbetti, uh, first phase of Corbetti's uh, power project was, was very exciting. Uh, we, I think, could identify two major uh, challenges going forward to the sustainability of Power Africa. One, I think, is the continued commitment of uh, partners uh, and of uh, people's uh, willingness to stay the course. Uh, I think that we've seen tremendous successes uh, over the f past few years of Power Africa, um, but we also know that governance is going to be a major issue. And so when you start coming up against these barriers and looking at where uh, going forward the results are, we have a tremendous uh, goal of tripling access to power now uh, we're very concerned that people uh, will start uh, backing away from uh, the commitments. And I think if you look at the challenge of governance on countries not being as transparent as they need to and not being able to unlock some of the power there, but also I think on our partners and I think the general public's uh, commitment to staying the course and making sure that we have a long-term vision for this initiative. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to all the witnesses. Um, your records individually are quite extraordinary, and I think we do a good job of always thanking, especially now, members of our armed services who serve repeated deployments, often to places that might not have been their first choice, sometimes in high threat areas where they can't bring their family, but I don't think we do a good enough job of thanking those like you who are in state or some of the other uh, agencies where you are small a ambassadors for us every day. Uh, so thank you for, for your careers in this area, and congratulations on your nominations. I'm on the Armed Services Committee, and I sort of have an Armed Services question. In the aftermath of the horrible tragedy at Benghazi, uh, decisions were made to augment embassy security around certain high-threat posts, and a number of those posts are in Africa. So we've built up a little bit of uh, additional military capacity. But at the same time, there's also been increasing requests from African governments for U.S presence in joint operations or training. There's a number of special purpose Marine Air Ground Task Forces that are assigned out of uh, AFRICOM that are working in different countries in Africa on joint exercises in counter-poaching, counter-trafficking, counter-terrorism. I just am curious, especially for my, my four over on this side in the countries where you're going to be, which I'd, I'd love to know anything about the kind of current state of mill-to-mill -mill relationships and are they, uh, is U.S. military presence in these kind of um, exercises uh, accepted and is it, is it working to our benefit? Thank you, Senator Kane, and it's great to see you again. I hope you will visit uh, Ghana just as you visited Morocco when I was there. Um, security cooperation in Ghana is excellent. Uh, Ghana is a member of the African Contingency Operations and Training and Assistance Program. It's a member of the African Rapid Preparedness uh, initiative, and uh, we have done a number of major military exercises there. Uh, we uh, deployed about 300 Marines there 
earlier this year as we looked at events in the region uh, on a contingency basis, um, and there will be uh, a major international exercise there next year. So I'm very satisfied with our security cooperation in Ghana, um, and Ghana's con contribution to peacekeeping has meant that our people are safe, which is my highest priority. Thank you. Mr. Thomas. Oh, thank you, Senator. Senator, um, we have sanctions against yeah. uh, Zimbabwe and its military because of the pernicious use of the security forces uh, during the elections. This is something that held uh, from even the Rhodesian days when the security forces were used to intimidate uh, people. So at this time, uh, we do not have relations. However, if Zimbabwe's government uh, establishes reform uh, in the future, has free and fair elections, transparency, reduces corruption, and endorses human rights, that is something that we would be willing to talk to um, the United States Senate and President Obama and the administration about. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Senator, um, thank you. The, uh, because of the current concerns about the human rights situation in Equatorial Guinea, we do not have direct military um, support for the government of Equatorial Guinea, but we have, um, as I mentioned earlier to Senator Markey, we, we have supported their, the government of Equatorial Guinea's participation in some regional exercises. Senator Kane in Guinea, we're building a new relationship with the military. It's only in the last five years that the military came under civilian authority, having suffered from coups in the past. Our main emphasis right now is using Ghanaian troops or helping support Ghanaian troops for peacekeeping operations in Mali, where they've accepted then one of the more difficult regions right on the border with Algeria. Uh, but we're still well aware that you have members in the military that were uh, implicated in the September 2008 stadium massacre. So it is a careful relationship on building a democratic military and security system while still taking advantage of Guinea's willingness to participate in regional crises. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Adam, uh, the United uh, Nations adopted sustainable development goals last week, sort of setting out for the next 15 years a, a whole series of uh, efforts to reduce extreme poverty, promote uh, public health, uh, educational opportunities, and advance uh, other human development goals. These goals sound very similar to some of the main areas of focus for USAID, but I just wonder if you have thoughts about how in your position in Africa you and your team will work to advance the UN's recently announced goals. All right, as you rightly point out, Senator, it's not a coincidence that the goals uh, reflect uh, the newly uh, revamped mission statement for USAID. Uh, working in the lead up to the Sustainable Development Goals uh, Summit uh, over the course of the past week, uh, USAID has been in partnership with a number of countries to actually come online uh, and basically say what would happen if the world focused its attention in a coordinated manner with the World Bank, other donors, uh, private sector partners, civil society organizations to look at measuring sustainable ways in the next generation of actually ending extreme poverty. Uh, it's an extremely ambitious goal. I think that the agency coming online with that has changed the way it's been doing business by uh, really looking at uh, a lot of the institutional causes of poverty, uh, from looking at food security through Feed the Future, or looking at infrastructure poverty, energy poverty, uh, through Power Africa, 
I think looking at how we deliver uh, relief assistance in effective ways through resiliency, uh, this has been a, a, a major goal of ours, and it's something that we are thinking that as you codify this worldwide, uh, we'll be able to take forward and have a guiding principles and shared understandings and lessons with the rest of the world uh, in this partnership as we go forward. Thank you, Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. I wanted to uh, stay with you, uh, Ms. Itam. Um, when I travel around the developed world and talk about opportunities for uh, U.S. businesses and U.S. exports, it's, it's rule of law, rule of law, rule of law. Um, and so I wanted to just inquire to you uh, as to the effect of some of the budget decisions we're making here on the ability to promote democracy and governance initiatives in Africa, uh, the amount of money available to USAID and a larger sum to uh, state has been declining uh, to the point now where I think in 2015 it was about 160 million overall for DG and that's down from just two years ago being up above 230. Uh, President, I think, has made a request to essentially double that number into the low 300s. And I just wonder if you could give us a flavor as to what the difference is between having, uh, and again, you're only accountable for a piece of this, but um, having twice as many resources as you do now to undergo uh, democracy and governance initiatives. Uh, is this a matter of expanding programs in existing countries? Is this a matter of getting to countries that have fallen off the list? I mean, there are a number of critical countries that aren't receiving any um, DG programming because of these cuts. What, what happens if we're successful in um, fulfilling the president's request? Uh, thank you, Senator, for your question. If we're successful in fulfilling the president's request, uh, I think you mentioned we take an all-of-the-above approach. There are a number of countries that actually do have been zeroed out, uh, not, do not have uh, democracy and governance budgets, and we look at restoring and, and retaining those budgets. But I think most importantly, uh, we see Africa right now in terms of its, its transitioning. You have, uh, you had over 12 exercises, 15 African electoral exercises in 2015. We have 20 coming up in 2016. We know that the urgent uh, needs right now are, are focused around how do you provide support for both those exercises, but also looking at uh, how do we look at the exercises that took place in 2015 and restoring and maintaining democracy there. Uh, you may have noticed also in the news, we have a number of fragile states and fragile environments, uh, from Burkina Faso to Central African Republic to South Sudan uh, to Burundi. Uh, we, we have a, a lot of complex crises there. And there, I think we have a role as the United States government in working in things like uh, constitution uh, strengthening, parliamentary strengthening, institution building. Obviously, even with uh, this increased request, we won't be able to answer all of the needs on the continent. Um, but I think that what we really look at is being able to deepen, I think, a lot of the investments and commitments that we do have uh, looking forward to, I think, a lot of the volatility that's upcoming in the next several years. I've, I've you know, thrown out this, uh, this comparison before, um, but you know, it's, it's, it's stunning that we complain about the lack of influence that America has around the world, and then we spend 0.1% of our GDP on foreign aid compared to 1950 when we were spending 3% of GDP on foreign aid. Um, it's not rock and science as to why we have a little bit less influence in some parts of the world. Um, Ms. Eaton, how about the question of flexibility? Um, uh, someone came into my office a few months back and you know, made a case 
uh, as to uh, how we could have done a better job of watching al-Shabaab move into the northern portions of Kenya, and had we had more flexibility of funds within USAID and state, um, that we could have done some work up front uh, to try to strengthen institutions, governance, uh, economic resources um, so as to try to prevent um, this uh, terrorist organization from getting a foothold. Um, can we do more um, to give USAID the necessary flexibility? Um, are you too compartmentalized in terms of how you're forced to spend this money even as priorities uh, and realities on the ground are shifting um, uh, within fiscal years? You raise a very good point, and I think as all of my fellow panelists will probably point out, the increased flexibility for our missions and embassies on the ground uh, lead to, I think, more creative thinking and better programming. At the same time, uh, we are able to focus, I think, the, within the constraints that we've been given uh, on the main priorities that are actually facing the African continent. And so a lot of the different uh, uh, ways that our funding comes is in the very critical areas of health and education. Uh, these are things, uh, these are areas that USAID and I, I think overall the U.S. government would be focused on. Uh, with, with your specific example uh, with Kenya and the idea of how we actually uh, deal with programs in complex crisis environments, there we require, I think, uh, flexible sources of funding. And for that reason, uh, typically when we make programming decisions, we put, you know, bureaucratically, we put uh, ESF funding in that, in, in flexible, uh, the most flexible funding that USAID has available. We direct at those types of countries and accounts because we know that programs are going to change. Uh, like the South Sudans of the world and like the Somalias, these are areas that require flexibility in more established countries like Kenya, that's where you, I think, come into some of the questions that you've just raised, where you have partners over a long period of time, but you also have a lot of dynamic and changing situations. And in that environment, we look at our own uh, programming cycle and we've made changes in the way we've done business so that we can actually work more closely with our uh, friends on the humanitarian side to come up with more flexible ways of using uh, and implement and, and, and making sure that we're uh, using more flexible means of programming humanitarian funds and, and not just having stark relief to development uh, trajectories, but actually applying a resilience model that allows us to use what pots of money are necessary to address the actual challenges that are on the ground. So of course, we'll, we'll always welcome uh, as much flexibility as possible. Uh, that's something that I think is a given. Um, but I also think it, uh, you know, some of the onus is on us as an agency to look at uh, really programming I think in modern and more modern ways, uh, and looking at the challenges from a, an entire holistic perspective. Well, put put more of the onus on us. I, I think we can do more to give you that additional flexibility. I appreciate you uh, taking ownership within the agency, but uh, we certainly can step up to the plate and do more. Uh, thank you all for st stepping up yourselves uh, to this kind of um, uh, laudable service. Look forward to working with you on your confirmation process. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, and I want to thank. Uh, witnesses today and my colleagues uh, for being here. We had uh, what, five or six members here for one of these hearings on a getaway day that uh, speaks well for the interest uh, and the importance of your service. I want to thank also your family members for being here. Uh, we are aware and appreciate the sacrifices that they make and that you make uh, in many cases to be away from them. Uh, you know, with uh, Mr. Hankins, you mentioned 26 years of service, is it, or, four, or 16? 16 assignments, that's a long time. And uh, we also, we always find that uh, family members, a lot of them end up serving uh, in our military or in our diplomatic service as well, and or find other ways to serve. 
uh, you know, based on your example. So thank you for what you're doing and thank you to the family members for the sacrifices that you put in. Uh, the hearing record will be remain open until Friday uh, for the benefit of the members. And if you could, uh, the witnesses could answer any questions that come your way uh, promptly so they could be uh, put as part of the hearing record, it would be appreciated. And with the thanks of the committee, uh, this hearing stands adjourned.